The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to NeuroMatters, the brink of Alzheimer's with Dr. Sam Brinkman. Our program brings together individuals who struggle with Alzheimer's disease or other disorders and noted professionals who can provide answers and timely information related to these disorders. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to NeuroMatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. I am your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman, and this program is about Alzheimer's disease and the dementias. And our topic of discussion today is normal pressure hydrocephalus. This will be uh, initially a review for many of you that have been uh, listening to this program for a while, but I want to talk first about the breakdown of the dementias. As I've said previously, dementia is a very nonspecific term. It simply means that an individual is experiencing a decline in some aspects of mental functioning. That may be in terms of memory or language functioning. It may be in terms of perceptual skills or executive functioning, but dementia simply means that these higher order mental processes are experiencing some decline. Under the heading of dementia, we separate into two groups. One group is called the reversible dementias. The other group is called the irreversible dementias. By reversible, we intend to communicate that if the underlying condition causing the dementia is treated successfully, the dementia goes away. The dementia is cured and the person is restored to their baseline level of cognitive functioning. Under the heading of irreversible dementias, of course, we intend to communicate um, conditions that can be treated in different ways, but um, we are unable at this point to reverse the physical or the uh, neurological condition which is causing the dementia. The irreversible dementias, the most common is of course Alzheimer's disease comprising about five and a quarter million cases in the United States. Second most common is probably Lewy body disorder uh, affecting perhaps two million individuals in the United States and of course these two Alzheimer's disease and Lewy body disorder may exist together in the same individual. Um, The uh, third most common irreversible dementia is what used to be called multi-infarct dementia, now called vascular dementia, and uh, this simply refers to a failure of the brain to continue to function well because of circulation problems which result in failure of delivery of oxygen and nutrients to brain tissue. And of course, uh, one would see then small infarcts or strokes that have occurred in that individual. Other of the irreversible dementias would include the frontotemporal dementias, which is a group of disorders, and uh, people often will include primary progressive aphasia in that group. Primary progressive aphasia, PPA, 
is a condition in which memory functioning remains at baseline, but there is a progressive worsening of language functioning. Another of the frontotemporal dementias would be Pick's disease, which has its onset in uh, usually the 40s or 50s and is associated with a lot of behavioral and emotional and personality disturbance early on and then progresses to cognitive disturbance later. So these, and Jakob Kreutzfeldt disease, of course, course is another of the irreversible dementias. It's a, uh, it's called a spongiform encephalopathy. It is a degenerative disorder. So we have these irreversible dementias. Now let's turn our attention to the reversible dementias. And the question that we ask here is, what are those conditions which can cause dementia, but which, if treated successfully, uh, will cause the dementia to be cleared up? And there are quite a number of conditions that we include under the reversible dementias. Traditionally, depression in an older individual has been seen as one of the reversible causes of dementia in that successful treatment of the depression often will cause a, uh, a recovery of cognitive abilities as well. I think recently there has been some refining of that diagnosis with consideration that in some cases the development of depression may be an early indicator that the person needs to be worked up for possible Alzheimer's disease or other irreversible condition. But we do know that depression in an older individual can cause dementia. Perhaps the second most common reversible condition is medication-induced dementia. In this situation, a medication or a combination of medications may have the side effect of causing a decline in mental abilities, which is the definition of dementia, and when the uh, medication changes are made, the dementia clears up. Now, you still have the condition to treat, which was being treated by the um, offending medication, and that can be addressed, hopefully, with other medications. Of course, common among these would be some of the older antidepressants, such as Elevil. Uh, Benadryl may be in this category, and that Benadryl in an older individual can cause some dementia. There are medications called anticholinergics that are not used much, but are used at times, and then, of course, a whole host of other medications could be offenders in that category. Other reversible causes of dementia would be uh, hypothyroidism or inadequate thyroid output, B12 or folate deficiency, uh, vitamin D deficiency, which is seen as a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease um, and which um, can cause dementia as well, uh, independent of Alzheimer's disease. And there are other things that can be listed, a urinary tract infection, upper respiratory infection. A large number of things can be um, identified that can cause loss of mental abilities or dementia and which, if treated, will eventuate in improvement in the mental ability such that the dementia is no longer there. Well, one of those disorders has traditionally been normal pressure hydrocephalus. So, we will talk about normal pressure hydrocephalus. Um, 
what its characteristics are, what happens with it, what causes it to come about, uh, what its clinical course is, how it is treated, and things along those lines. But for our discussion today, we will consider normal pressure hydrocephalus to be one of the reversible conditions. Now, how common is this condition? Well, it's thought that over the age of 65, and it most commonly develops in the 60s and 70s, over the age of 65, about half of one percent um, uh, are uh, is considered the prevalence about five and a half patients per one hundred thousands of people per year is the incidence and uh, and these statistics apply to the United States so and, uh, these um, statistics are generally agreed upon it uh, is not selective for males or females it may be seen in either group um, and it may be seen in younger individuals, but it is more commonly seen in individuals uh, in their 60s and 70s. There are two overall categories or types of normal pressure hydrocephalus. The first of these is called idiopathic. That's just a, a fancy word that says we don't know why it's there. The other is called secondary normal pressure hydrocephalus. And by that, it, it is intended to communicate that the normal pressure hydrocephalus develops in response to some other condition which has taken place. Common among those conditions would be a blow to the head, brain trauma, for example, or um, inflammation of linings on the brain, um, such as meningitis, an inflammatory process such as encephalitis, um, vascular problems, uh, perhaps seen as a stroke, may also lead to the development of normal pressure hydrocephalus. Now, hydrocephalus, uh, many of you have heard of over the years, and what I would like to do is maybe separate that term into two types, communicating hydrocephalus and obstructive hydrocephalus. And so as we get into these, uh, I'm going to teach you a little bit about the, the flow of fluid through the brain and what happens in certain disorders. But for purposes right now, communicating hydrocephalus means that there is a continuous pathway of the flow of fluid through all the different cavities of the brain and uh, over the, the surfaces of the brain. And obstructive hydrocephalus would mean that um, a roadblock has been uh, placed in some aspect of that circulation so that the flow of fluid is obstructed. And that will, of course, cause an increased pressure in the areas above that. So, normal pressure is probably um, a somewhat incorrect term. Um, generally, the pressure, the intracranial pressure, the pressure inside the brain uh, will be in the normal to high normal range in normal pressure hydrocephalus, and there may be spikes. There may be times of um, elevation of that pressure, and um, that is... Um, uh, uh, sometimes measured, for example, when a lumbar puncture is done and we see that the opening pressure is abnormally high. So let me sort of explain the whole process this way. The brain resides in a closed and hard vault. Now, it's not completely closed. We have uh, that large hole at the base of the skull that's called the foramen magnum, and then we have the orbits, the places where the eyes are, and these are openings into the cranium or into the head, but other than that, there is not much 
opportunity for pressure inside the brain to be relieved. So with normal pressure hydrocephalus or with obstructive hydrocephalus, there is too much fluid in the compartments of the brain and this buildup of fluid in those compartments pushes against the inside of the skull and in essence squashes the uh, surfaces of the brain and a number of different types of symptoms may uh, ensue from that. Um, as most of you are aware, the brain consists, consists of neurons or, or what we usually mean by the term brain cells. And then there are glial cells, which have a supportive role in you know, some recent suggestion that they may have a coding or messaging type role as well. And they also manage the chemical environment around the neurons. So we have these structures, we have the lining, and we have the circulation structures of the brain. And then we, set, we have a set of cavities in the brain. There are two lateral ventricles, one on each side, and then below that is the third ventricle and below that is the fourth ventricle. We have cerebral spinal fluid, which we abbreviate as CSF, cerebral spinal fluid. And this fluid circulates through the ventricles and, and through special little structures that connect the ventricles and on down the spinal cord and then on back up, washing over the surfaces of the brain where the, the fluid uh, starts becoming absorbed. So uh, this is what we refer to as the ventricular system. There are four cavities, the two lateral ventricles, the third ventricle, and the fourth ventricle. And we have this CSF, or cerebral spinal fluid, continuously circulating through those areas. Now, the fluid in these cavities has the effect of helping to absorb um, the uh, shock to the brain when the head is struck also has the function of helping to maintain the chemical environment of, uh, of brain structures and, uh, um, and then um, as well um, continues to circulate throughout these structures. So given that that's how our ventricular system is made and how the fluid circulates, when we come back from the break in just a couple of minutes here, I will talk with you about what happens with normal pressure hydrocephalus. So please stay with us. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matter System provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders. 
or forget it. By making some important changes in your life, you can move forward from where you are to where you wish to be. It is becoming the change you want to see. It can be a sort of experiment, if you will. On Moving Forward, Wellness One Step at a Time, your host, Dr. Serena Wadhwa, will introduce you to ideas that can help improve your health, relationships, and finances. You probably have at least one part of your life that needs improving. Make an appointment now to join us every Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. Welcome back to the program, and thank you for staying with us. We are talking about normal pressure hydrocephalus, which is normally categorized under one of the reversible conditions which can cause dementia. In our first segment, I sketched out for you the cavities in the brain and the little structures that connect the cavities, and we talked about how cerebral spinal fluid, or CSF, circulates through those cavities and fulfills certain functions. Basically, what you have is a system in which a couple of structures called the choroid plexus, there's one in each of the lateral ventricles, the choroid plexus manufactures this fluid. It produces the fluid, and that uh, fluid then circulates, and the fluid is then absorbed in little structures called the arachnoid granulations. The um, failure of the arachnoid granulations to absorb this fluid results in the overproduction or too much of the fluid available, and that causes a... um, Uh, the increase in pressure inside the brain. When that happens, as we talked before, since there are only a couple of um, places in which pressure inside the brain can be relieved, the pressure will intermittently rise, pushing the surfaces of the brain against the inner table of the skull. And so we can think of normal pressure hydrocephalus as being one of the communicating, uh, a, a form of communicating hydrocephalus in that there There's no obstruction in the flow and in which the CSF is not reabsorbed. Therefore, there are times of increased intracranial pressure. So clinically, what does one see uh, when a patient presents with normal pressure hydrocephalus? One of the difficulties with the diagnosis is that the symptoms have overlaps with other conditions. In general, with uh, normal pressure hydrocephalus, you see three sets of symptoms. The first is a change in the gait pattern or the walking pattern. The second is a reduction in the ability to control urine flow. And the third is a change in mental abilities. That's the dementia part. So we have this triad of uh, difficulty walking, 
difficulty controlling urine flow, sometimes called urinary incontinence, and the changes in mentation, which may be termed dementia. And we see this pattern and we uh, think about the possibility of this diagnosis. Now, the change in the walking pattern is somewhat similar to the walking pattern seen in other conditions such as progressive supranuclear palsy or uh, Lewy body disorder or Parkinson's disease. And so there can be confusion there. The change in mentation is similar to the changes in mentation that you see with Alzheimer's disease. The mental changes may be in terms of memory, maybe in terms of mental efficiency or mental sharpness. You may see changes in language, especially word-finding problems and perhaps using incorrect words. Uh, a person may have a tendency to become confused, may become confused geographically or have a difficult time finding uh, his or her way from one place to another. So we have um, many different types of changes in mentation that can occur. Um, and then, of course, the uh, urinary incontinence, which can be caused by a lot of other conditions as well. But when we see this triad, this set of three symptoms of uh, change in the walking pattern, change in mentation, change in urine control, then we think about the possibility of normal pressure hydrocephalus. Now, the walking pattern um, can be a little bit variable, but mostly looks like what we would refer to as uh, magnetic feet. Difficulty with with um, initiating the feet into movement and maintaining good leg and foot control uh, in coordination with the other side of the body so that walking can take place. Often you will see what neurologists refer to as a broad-based gait. The base is how far apart the feet are placed. And if we consider that normally, uh, we would think of the feet being maybe um, outside to outside, um, 15, 12 to 15 inches apart. With a broad-based gait, they would be much farther apart than that. And of course, that does improve the stability of the person. This is why the person unconsciously compensates for the gait problem that way, but it does become uh, very noticeable and very observable. Um, so, um, we see that triad. What's the next step in the workup? Well, of course, part of any dementia workup is invo uh, involves a physical examination with labs and things like that. But uh, a neuroimaging study then would be indicated, either a CT scan or an MRI, magnetic resonance imaging. And what you will see in normal, pres uh, normal pressure hydrocephalus in the imaging study is basically that the ventricles are significantly larger than they are expected to be for the person's age, that would be the lateral ventricles, third ventricle, and fourth ventricle, um, are larger than expected for the patient's age. And what you would see is evidence that the um, outer surfaces of the brain are being pushed against the inner table of the skull. Now, uh, we have valleys and ridges uh, on the outer surfaces of the brain. Um, it's a, a uh, um, th these things are called uh, gyri, the ridges, which are made of brain tissue, and the sulci, which are the valleys in between the gyri. And what uh, you will see in the imaging study is the sulci are smaller uh, because, the, because of the pressure that's being placed there. 
So when you see that uh, that pressure effect on the on the uh, surfaces of the brain, and you see enlargement of the lateral ventricles, then you consider the uh, possible diagnosis of normal pressure hydrocephalus. So. Um, Two types, the idiopathic, which means that the, the problem simply evolves, it simply develops on its own, and we really do not understand why. And then the secondary normal pressure hydrocephalus, which may occur after blunt trauma to the head, uh, such as falling and striking the head, uh, or after a stroke, or after inflammation process of the brain, or the lining on the brain, or, or things along these lines. And the essential problem with it is the CSF is being produced, but it's not being absorbed as it should be. So you have the imaging study that may show that pattern. Um, at that point, the decision may be, may be made to do a lumbar puncture, or LP. Um, as you know, the LP is done in order to withdraw fluid, to withdraw CSF so that it can be analyzed for its content to see whether there's an indication of any kind of an infectious process going on in the brain um, or to see whether um, there, there's some other abnormality, uh, abnormal proteins or things along those lines, just as a point of reference when we've talked about uh, biomarkers with Alzheimer's disease, uh, biomarkers such as beta amyloid or um, act hyperactivated tau protein, often it involves withdrawing that CSF through a lumbar puncture in order to study that CSF to see whether uh, those uh, proteins are elevated. But anyway, the needle is introduced, and if there is an increase in pressure inside the brain, that pressure will also be increased down in the low back region where the puncture is made. And so the physician doing the lumbar puncture will measure what is called opening pressure. How much pressure is that fluid under at the time that the, the needle is introduced into the CSF-containing space? And if that pressure pressure is high, then of course you would have further evidence that there may be communicating hydrocephalus. If the pressure is low, it may or may not be normal pressure hydrocephalus at that point. Typically, the physician will then draw off a significant amount of that fluid, perhaps 30 cc's or so, and determine whether the patient has had any clinical improvement as a result of drawing that fluid off. So, with this lumbar puncture and with withdrawing the fluid, you have um, several items of information. One is you have the measurement of opening pressure. If it's high, that's supportive of a diagnosis of normal pressure hydrocephalus. If it's low, it may or may not, uh, if it's normal range rather, it may or may not be normal pressure hydrocephalus. And then after drawing off a significant amount of fluid, the physician uh, will observe whether the patient's um, balance and gait pattern are improved. And if they are improved, then that further supports a diagnosis of normal pressure hydrocephalus. One of the things that is being done more recently is to slowly allow pressure to drain off through the, through the lumbar puncture site, slowly allow that uh, fluid to drain off and therefore um, theoretically at least normalize the pressure over a period of time, um, a day or two, for example. And the physician will be observing 
um, whether there are improvements in the clinical symptoms over that couple of days while the pressure is being managed by a lumbar shunt, basically is what that would be called. So uh, we have the imaging study, which would show enlargement of these cavities called the ventricles because there's too much fluid too much CSF inside the brain, um, and then we would have the lumbar puncture, which would give a measurement of opening pressure, um, and then draw off fluid, which will decrease pressure and evaluate whether the patient is doing better clinically. Uh, or alternatively, put a lumbar shunt in, allow that pressure to normalize gradually over a couple of days, and um, then determine whether the patient is doing better clinically. So through this diagnostic workup, then some type of a treatment will be proposed. And uh, when we come back after our break, we will talk about what the treatment options are for normal pressure hydrocephalus that may result in a restoration of more normal uh, mental functioning. So stay with us as we go to a break, and we will be back shortly. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. 
Thank you for staying with us. I am your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman, and we are talking about normal pressure hydrocephalus, which is listed as one of the reversible conditions that can cause dementia. Recall from our first segment and from earlier shows that there are many, many conditions which can cause an older individual to begin to have memory problems, um, problems with thinking clearly, making decisions, uh, regulating behavior appropriately, uh, perceiving things correctly. So there are many, many conditions that can cause those problems. And while most of these conditions are irreversible, the research suggests that 20% of the conditions are reversible. In other words, if you are able to successfully treat the condition causing the changes in mental functioning, then you can um, uh, then that treatment can lead to an improvement to baseline in those mental abilities. So normal pressure hydrocephalus is thought to be one of those conditions. As its name implies, um, you may have spikes of increased temperature, but generally speaking, the uh, uh, the pressure rather the pressure of the uh, inside of the brain tends to be in the normal to high normal area most of the time. If a patient is being evaluated for uh, memory problems and other cognitive problems, and that triad is seen, which includes a change in the walking pattern, a broad-based gait, a magnetic type of gait, instability of gait of some sort, and that person has developed a history of urinary incontinence, and the person has changes in mentation, then a workup for normal pressure hydrocephalus is considered. While there are labs that will be done to work up other possible conditions that could cause dementia, an imaging study, a CT scan or MRI imaging would be done uh, in order to visualize the major structures of the brain. With normal pressure hydrocephalus, one would see an increase in the size of the ventricles of the brain, but keep in mind that you see an increase in the size of the ventricles of the brain in uh, more advanced Alzheimer's disease as well, simply because of the number of brain cells that have been lost. There is no other tissue to fill that void, and therefore the fluid um, uh, fills the void, making the ventricles appear larger. So what differentiates normal pressure hydrocephalus from Alzheimer's disease in the CT scan or MRI imaging is the, um, the degree to which the surfaces of the brain show evidence that they are being pushed against the inner table of the skull. And when you have that pattern of what looks like pressure effects on the surface of the brain and the larger um, uh, ventricles, then you consider normal pressure hydrocephalus to be more likely. Uh, following that, a lumbar puncture may be done to withdraw fluid, and you may see an increase in the opening pressure when the needle is introduced, uh, or you may see normal pressure there. If you do see an increase in pressure, the diagnosis of normal pressure hydrocephalus is more likely. If you do not see the increase, if you see normal opening pressure, normal pressure hydrocephalus may still be there, uh, but just at a lower normal pressure point in the cycle. 
and then some fluid may be drained off either um, just through the LP needle or through a shunt and the physician will evaluate whether there are improvements in the patient's symptoms at that point. So let's say then that this individual has presented with that triad and has gone through the workup and the consideration is for a di diagnosis of normal pressure hydrocephalus. What are the options available? Well, at this time there has been no, no medication that is proven to be useful in improving the symptoms of normal pressure hydrocephalus. We don't have a mechanism, a, a medication mechanism, for example, to make the uh, arachnoid granulations absorb more fluid and try to normalize the uh, amount of fluid inside the brain. And so the uh, only intervention that, that can be offered with uh, some hope of success would be a surgical procedure. A neurosurgeon would introduce a shunt would introduce that into one of the lateral ventricles, normally the right lateral ventricle, and that shunt will have a pressure valve on it and will have a tube coming off it that will exit from uh, under the skull and the back of the neck and stay under the skin and go down into the peritoneal cavity. As pressure inside the brain increases, as there is the accumulation of too much of the cerebral spinal fluid, the shunt valve will open and that will uh, allow the fluid to drain down into the lower abdomen area where it will be picked up and um, and uh, eliminated from the body. So that is uh, what is called a ventriculoperitoneal shunt or a VP shunt. There has been um, recently more interest in uh, something that is called a third ventriculostomy. So let me explain that uh, surgical procedure to you. It's done endoscopically. Um, an ostomy simply means that a hole has been made in a structure so as to divert the flow of substance through that structure. A ventriculostomy means that a hole is made in one of the ventricles, and in this case, it's the third ventricle. So the endoscopic third ventriculostomy will allow the um, drainage of fluid from the uh, from its normal circulation throughout the ventricles and down the spinal cord and up uh, through the subarachnoid space. And that is uh, being proposed as a potential treatment as well. But uh, basically, the overwhelming majority of cases are treated with a ventriculoperitoneal shunt. And it um, presents with reasonable expectations of success, but um, it has been difficult to uh, predict which patients will respond well and which ones will not. In a, a study that was published back in 2004, um, the um, uh, there was evidence that the um, introduction of the shunt would provide would provide data that had a lot more predictive accuracy, and of course that's being followed up on with how much predictive accuracy can be derived from the lumbar shunt being in place for a few days. But we have to keep in mind that normal pressure hydrocephalus is a system that develops. It's a situation that develops slowly over time, and the resolution of it, um, while often quite remarkable initially, will continue to take place over time as well.
Um, possibility of success, the 2004 study basically said that beneficial outcomes were seen in 86% of patients. Um, uh, most notably, they saw improvements in gait and in um, improved urine control or in both of those areas. And, um, and so, this 86% is, um, gives us reason to um, offer the shunt as a uh, procedure that may be used for alleviation of some of the symptoms, but we have this other 14% that does not produce, um, that where the shunt does not produce the beneficial outcome that you would like to see. Uh, I'm not certain what the reason for that is. Attempts have been made to determine whether how long the normal pressure hydrocephalus has been present or how um, markedly elevated the pressure may be. Other, other indicators like that, but um, right now uh, we can only point to multiple multiple factors as potential explanations. Obviously, one of those factors is that the normal pressure hydrocephalus could be coexisting with um, something like Alzheimer's disease or vascular dementia. If the, uh, uh, if we have the technology, which I hope that we will have in a few years, of uh, finding biomarkers in cerebral spinal fluid that would be reflective of Alzheimer's disease, then that may allow greater predictability. In other words, if someone has normal pressure hydrocephalus, but also has abnormal proteins in fluid that would be suggestive of uh, Alzheimer's disease, then um, I would think that that person would have less of a therapeutic response to the shunt procedure. And um, uh, beyond that, there have been attempts at looking at whether patients have uh, uh, all three of the clinical triad, the normal pressure, the um, um, uh, mentation changes, urinary incontinence, and gait disturbance, or if they only have two of those, does that have any predictive value? What about the size of these valleys on the cortical surfaces of the brain, the sulci, um, that may be an indication of how much pressure there is, um, or other things like uh, something called periventricular lucencies. This is just a, a way of saying that in a CAT scan, in the area of the brain around the ventricles, um, there may be some areas of abnormal density potentially reflective of strokes that have occurred there or something like that. And so the, the attempts have been made to determine whether any of these factors or even the degree of dementia before the shunt procedure is done, whether any of these factors would predict outcome. And unfortunately, the predictive power of these factors has been uh, rather low. So we can say that um, uh, there is uh, based on this series, uh, 86% chance of uh, a significant clinical improvement, but we cannot predict very accurately right now which of those patients and which clinical characteristics of those patients would encourage us to offer a shunt or which would discourage us from offering a shunt. So um, that continues to be a difficult question, and um, unfortunately, it, it results at times in individuals who have undergone the ventriculoperitoneal shunt and who actually do not have uh, any significant clinical improvement. Uh, that is a disappointment when it happens. 
So as I had mentioned earlier, there are no medications that are available that have been demonstrated to be therapeutic for the target symptoms in normal pressure hydrocephalus. Um, and uh, there would be the hope eventually that something would become available that would perhaps um, uh, result in improvement in the regulatory processes between the production of cerebral spinal fluid and the absorption of the fluid, or that some medication might become available that would increase absorption of the fluid, but uh, right now we are not, um, uh, we're not able to go uh, beyond this point. Now, I mentioned to you that normal pressure hydrocephalus is a chronic condition. It's something that develops slowly over time, and um, while um, often after the shunt procedure is done, you may see quite a remarkable improvement. Um, I have seen, for example, patients who, after having had the shunt procedure, are able to get up out of a chair when they have not been able to get up out of a chair independently for months before that. So you may see some initial rapid improvement, but the, there may be improvement for a considerable period of time after that. And of course, uh, that is the outcome that we like to see. So we have finished our third segment. We are going to go to a break, and when we return, we will wrap up this discussion. So stay with us. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. 
Thank you for staying with us for our fourth segment. We are talking about normal pressure hydrocephalus, which is considered one of the reversible causes of dementia. It is a chronic condition which occurs when there is the accumulation of too much fluid in the cavities or ventricles of the brain. This fluid, as I've mentioned earlier, normally flows through the four ventricles of the brain and on down the spinal column or spinal cord and, and uh, comes back up and also uh, will circulate over the surfaces of the brain. It is supposed to be absorbed by uh, structures that are called arachnoid granulations, and when there is a failure of that absorption of fluid, too much fluid accumulates and uh, one sees increased pressure inside the brain. The term normal pressure hydrocephalus, therefore, is partly right but not completely right because often there will be elevations of temperature in the brain. We talked about the three key symptoms that alert someone to the possibility of normal pressure hydrocephalus, those being the change in the gait pattern or change in walking pattern, um, the second being a decrease in urine control resulting in urinary incontinence, and the third being the changes in mental abilities. Now, it is interesting that uh, as the size of these ventricles increase, there are there is a pooling effect or a... Um, a tethering effect on long axons that start on the surface of the brain and go on down around the ventricles and on down to the spinal cord where um, a new neuron will take place and go to the muscles of the legs. So as that tethering effect takes place, then um, you have the decrease in the control of the legs and that causes the walking problems. Similarly, there is stretching or tethering of fibers that go from the frontal cortical areas of the brain that inhibit the um, natural reaction to empty the bladder. And so when uh, when you have stretching or tethering of those fibers, then you also have uh, the loss of urine control. And then, of course, you have the pressing of the cortical surfaces of the brain against the inner table of the skull, and that is what is thought to result in the cognitive changes. So um, given that uh, the individual presents with those three symptoms and has a CAT scan or MRI that demonstrates demonstrates enlargement of the ventricles and what appears to be pressure effects on the surfaces of the brain, uh, the lumbar puncture may be done and that may show increased opening pressure uh, or normal pressure, either one, but um, the evaluation of that and the withdrawing of fluid then would stabilize pressure and the physician would then evaluate whether the patient has had significant improvement in that area. Basically, opening pressure, if it's high, does suggest that the patient will do better as a result of a shunt. Opening pressure in the normal range does not predict one way or the other. So the higher pressure is thought to be uh, somewhat more predictive of the positive clinical outcome, significant alleviation of symptoms. Um, and uh, as I had mentioned, also a lumbar shunt may be done temporarily for a couple of days to allow that pressure to stabilize for uh, for a slightly uh, slightly longer 
time period to see whether the person improves clinically in the hope that clinical improvement with the lumbar shunt would predict clinical improvement with the ventricular peritoneal shunt. The problem being that while there is good reason to expect clinical success as a result of doing the VP shunt. There continue to be a significant number of patients who either do not get better or may improve temporarily and then decline again. So I would like to address just for a little bit um, the management of those patients who have normal pressure hydrocephalus who do not get better. One possibility that I had mentioned is that there may be another disorder involving the brain and that disorder may be preventing the person from improving. So normal pressure hydrocephalus may coexist, for example, with Alzheimer's disease in some individuals. And while the pressure may be uh, stabilized with the VP shunt, the Alzheimer's disease pathology has advanced to the point that the person is not able to uh, improve in several key areas. And so that's one possibility, but there are individuals who are left with chronic symptoms from normal pressure hydrocephalus to the point that they have a significant impact on uh, the individual's quality of life. And we will, we will talk about those. Um, as I mentioned earlier, normal pressure hydrocephalus is a chronic condition and it is not cured by the VP shunt, but some aspects of it are managed so that the patient hopefully gets symptomatic improvement. Now, there may continue to be individuals who will um, have uh, progressively worsening uh, symptoms of uh, balance instability or poor control of uh, the legs to the point that mobility gets to be a very serious problem. And these are individuals who will have to begin using assistive devices like a quad cane or a rolling walker in order to maintain adequate stability that they avoid falling and, and injuring themselves even worse. Um, so with respect to the walking pattern, you know, we have that issue that would have to be addressed and safety becomes a very significant issue then. Uh, additionally, um, you have the problem of the urinary incontinence and that has far-reaching uh, impact. For example, if a person does not have good urine control, the person will become more and more hesitant uh, to be around other people. It is frankly embarrassing and it presents certain hygiene obstacles. Uh, people may be resistant to wearing adult diapers, but that may restore to them some degree of uh, uh, social interactedness and um, Hopefully, that would help to, to decrease the rate of further decline in mental faculties, for example. But um, regardless of the symptom pattern that tends to persist, whether it be the gait change, the urinary control problem, or the um, mentation changes, the person is going to need help from a caregiver to manage those things. And uh, the caregiver may have to fill in many different roles there. So there are uh, some support associations that uh, I am going to list for you. The first of these is the Family Caregiver Alliance with the National Center on Caregiving. Their phone number is 
1-800-382-8106. And if you didn't get that number, you can go back to the podcast or the archive of the program. The Hydrocephalus Association, area code 415-732-7040. The National Hydrocephalus Foundation, area code 562-924-6666 and the Hydrocephalus Support Group, area code 636-532-8228. And I would certainly add to that the Alzheimer Association is a very helpful resource for individuals who have chronic and, um, and potentially progressive changes in their mental functioning, regardless of what the etiology of that is. So, normal pressure hydrocephalus, uh, potentially a reversible cause of dementia, um, usually clinical improvement with ventriculoperitoneal shunt, but not always. And when that improvement is not seen, and given that no medications are available at this point, then um, the caregivers will have to step up and provide chronic care. Thank you for being with us on the program. I hope that you found it educational and helpful in your lives, and I look forward to being back with you next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Neuro Matters, the Brink of Alzheimer's. Please join Dr. Sam Brinkman again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week.